This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Forget the frustration of picking commerce platforms when you switch your business to Shopify, the global commerce platform that supercharges your selling wherever you sell. With Shopify, you'll harness the same intuitive features, trusted apps, and powerful analytics used by the world's leading brands. Sign up today for your $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash tech, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash tech. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Namaste, Welcome to Namaste Motherfuckers, the only podcast where the worlds of work, comedy and well-being collide. The podcast where the life-changing stuff happens. I'm your host Callie Beaton and this episode is called Just a Dream. And today's theme is the brain. American scientist Emerson Pugh said, if the human brain was so simple that we could understand it, we would be so simple that we couldn't. The human brain is almost 60% fat and there is evidence that it is getting smaller over time. It runs on 20 watts of electricity, which is enough to power a little light bulb. Research in 2021 showed that antisocial adults have smaller brains than friendlier ones. And according to MRI scans, the part of our brain responsible for judgment deactivates when we look at a picture of someone we love. Ain't that the truth? No, it's fine. That yeah? works. You've got me? Yeah, that's coming through. Yes, yes. Fantastic. That's today's guest, Anil Seth. And full disclosure, he did not provide any of the facts I'm talking about now, so don't blame him. The pathologist who performed the autopsy on Einstein stole his brain and kept it in a jar for 23 years. According to a study at Stanford University, kids' brains start tuning out their mum's voice at the age of 13. Oh, you've got to laugh, haven't you? And talking of laughing, according to Edward de Bono, humour is by far the most significant activity of the human brain. That's right. Yeah, I got back last night. That's a lovely city. I'm very fond of Amsterdam. Amil Seth is a celebrated neuroscientist whose TED talk, Your Brain Hallucinates Your Conscious Reality, has had more than 14 million views. Last year, he published a book called Being You, a new science of consciousness, which has received incredible reviews and been endorsed by an eclectic list of clever people, including David Byrne, Alex Garland and Russell Brand. I said it was eclectic. It's worth mentioning, by the way, that when we recorded this, it 
was the day before I tested positive for COVID, so I do sound a bit like Frank Butcher, and there is some coughing, most of which has probably been edited out by now by clever producer Mike. Um, but yes, I'm worried maybe bits of it sound like um, who wants to be a millionaire and the coughing major. But anyway, enough about that. Um, just a quick word as well about my lovely brother, Mike, who does get mentioned a couple of times in the episode. That's because my brother did a PhD in the field of cognitive science at Sussex University, which is where Anal is. So their paths crossed. And it is thanks to my brilliant brother that I was able to get a little bit of a grip on the subject of consciousness before speaking to Anil. Oh, and just one last thing before we get into the meat and potatoes of the episode. Um, there's something called the perception census. There's details in the show notes, which Anil and I talk about at the end of the podcast. Um, and what it is, is, well, it's part of the acclaimed Dream Machine program. And it's a combination of games, illusions, brain teasers. And basically, you explore how you perceive sound and time and how your imagination works. But you also take part in a census that is um, quite revelatory. Uh, so you're actually helping as well as learning about yourself anyway i'm going to stop bollocking on now let's get into today's episode anil and i talked about neuroscience consciousness sleep wakefulness buddhism empathy the brain the body impermanence hallucination color science philosophy humans animals and whether robots will ever be conscious but I started by asking him how he would describe or define consciousness. I would define consciousness very simply as any kind of experience whatsoever. It's Consciousness is what goes away when you fall into a dreamless sleep, or for those who've had general anesthesia, it really goes away then. There's just oblivion. And it's what comes back when you wake up and come around again. It's the presence of an experienced world and self within it. So this is just different from the fact that your brain does complicated stuff. You, we can all get the idea that the brain is this hugely complicated biological machine and that takes input coming into the eyes and the ears and there's lots of stuff happening on the inside and then the body ends up moving and the mouth ends up moving sometimes as well but why should any of this be accompanied by experience at all why doesn't it just go on in the dark like we were some kind of meaty robot it doesn't and that's one of the everyday miracles and, and joys of life if we didn't have conscious experiences, then life wouldn't really mean anything to any of us. But how it happens, why it happens, these are some of the deepest, most long-lasting mysteries in, in all of science and philosophy. And what, well, first of all, as well, is it, should we be trying to define consciousness? I know that is the, you know, that that's the work you're embedded in, but does it make sense to try to define it? To some extent, it makes sense to know what we're talking about mm -hmm. because there's a tendency sometimes for people to just assume consciousness has some other meaning. Like for some people, it might mean some society-wide phenomenon where you know, there's a general emergence of political agreement or something like that. For other people, it might mean something like intelligence or, or having language or being the specific person that you happen to be with, with memories and plans and so on. So, 
definitions are very useful for just making sure that we're all talking about the same thing. But science doesn't start with a definition and then just keep it locked in forever. The history of science is pretty revealing that definitions, they're, they're going to evolve along with our deeper understanding. So as we understand more and more about this basic phenomenon of experience, then our definition of consciousness might change too. And is it, in terms of your book being you, in layman's terms, what what is it that's revelatory about the work that you're doing in this field as distinct from what people maybe thought 10, 20, 30 years ago about consciousness? There's quite a lot of excitement going on at the moment. I was just in, in Amsterdam for this meeting, which was about taking two theories of consciousness and figuring out how we can compare them in the lab, coming up with specific predictions that we could test. And this is really quite a big contrast to what things were like 20 years ago when I was starting out as a postdoc in, in California. Then consciousness was still quite fringe. It still is quite fringe. It's still considered this slightly weird end of psychology and neuroscience, even though I think it's really the central question. But 20 years ago, there were far fewer people who would at least admit they were interested in focusing on it. And there weren't really that many well-developed theories about what it was for or how it might work. And the experiments people were doing were quite straightforward, which is no bad thing, but that's what it was like at the time. Like what happens in the brain when you fall asleep? And what happens in the brain when you see one thing rather than another thing? That's all fine. But now things have moved on quite a lot. And although there is no feeling that we're... We're, we're nearly there. It's not It's not that a solution is just around the corner. A lot more is known about the brain part, the brain regions that are involved in consciousness. A lot more is I think, understood about what consciousness really is, what, it, what the different aspects of it are. And we also have these different theories that we can pit against each other, compare them and figure out which is more promising. And then the theories themselves evolved. My own ideas have developed too and they fit into this wider landscape and they are much more about thinking about the brain as this kind of prediction machine and that concept providing a way to understand why different kinds of conscious experiences are the way they are why is our visual experience the way it is and why is the experience of being a self the way it is because the experience of being me is very different from the experience of seeing you know, the rooftops in the sky out of the window but they're both kinds of consciousness and that's also assuming there's just one version of ourselves because it's really i found it really interesting when i first heard about the concept of neuroplasticity and the thought that our brain our memory isn't sort of a filing cabinet of fixed memories but that things move and then tying into that through sort of mindfulness and Buddhism and various things I've kind of got involved in as midlife crisis people do, uh, sort of starting to think about the different, the sort of impermanence of self and the idea then that if there are these ranges of selves, how, what impact does that have on consciousness? What, what's your view on, on that, the sort of episodic self? I'm very sympathetic to that. In fact, uh, just uh, a few days ago, I had this really interesting dialogue with a, a Buddhist monk, Tenzin Namdak, about the 
crossover, the the interactions, the links, the overlaps between what this modern neuroscience of consciousness has to say about the self and what the practice of meditation and the writings in Buddhism, the Buddhist texts have to say about the self. And there's a huge amount of, of interesting overlap. It's not completely overlapping. There are differences too. But one of the key ideas is indeed the idea of impermanence. Now, in Buddhism, this is really central. It's not just the impermanence of the self, it's the impermanence of, of everything. But in particular, the idea that there's this fixed, unchanging essence of a person is both the source of a lot of suffering and also it just has no basis either in biology or in our own experience. And we somehow get conditioned in some cultures to thinking that there is, that there's this intrinsic essence of me that came about nearly 50 years ago and will just sort of go on until I die and perhaps beyond. And there is a kind of continuity. Of course there is. It's the same body, although the parts of the body change and turn over as well. But there has been a continuous thread of experience throughout all these years. But the experience of self is always changing. It has to always change, in a sense. And it's a good thing that it, it can change and that it does change. And we just don't really notice the change happening. There's uh, a phenomenon, it's a really kind of a lovely phenomenon in psychology called change blindness. That if you show people a scene, let's say it's like a, a picture of a room, and what you don't tell them is you're going to change the color of half of the room very, very slowly. And you, know, you just have this room, they're just looking at it. Most people won't notice the change at all if they're not expecting it and not looking for it. They're blind to the change. But their perception of the room is still changing. It's just that they don't perceive the change itself. And I think something very similar is happening about the self. We are becoming different people all the time, but we are blind to the changing self. And that can be you know, quite important. You now we need this psychological anchor of stability and, and um, persistence over time to some degree, but we tend to overestimate it if we think there is this essence of unchanging meanness or you-ness that goes on independently of our changing brains and our changing bodies and our changing lives and our changing environments. No, all of this feeds into the changing self and reconciling ourselves to the fact that we change like this i think that's one of the the really powerful synergies between neuroscience and buddhism it's also quite reassuring in a way because i think what we're scared of is there's this one version of ourselves and god forbid that we go through something that might alter our conscious state or that something or we're gonna it feels very sort of absolute otherwise and obviously like as with all things things are rarely that sort of black and white and you you've your TED Talk, which is where I first came across you, uh, which is much viewed, um, over 14 million views, I think. Uh, so that's more than any of my stand-ups. So well done. Um, <laughs> your brain hallucinates your conscious reality. So this idea of us living in a controlled hallucination, I read a piece of yours in The Guardian not long ago, and, and just to quote it, we live in a controlled hallucination that remains tied to reality by a dance of prediction and correction, but which is never identical to that reality, and which I thought summed it up really well 
but people can find 18 minutes to watch a TED talk too, I'm sure. But but just that, that idea of um of us all being in on the hallucination. Tell me about that. It's a very well, the seeds of the idea are very old, like all ideas in neuroscience, they have a long history. And this history goes back to Plato, it goes back to Immanuel Kant, and it's it's the basic idea that even though it seems to us that we just experience the world as it is, we we open our eyes and there's the world. It just pours itself into our minds directly. That's not what's going on. The brain, if you imagine what it's like to be a brain, just there you are, you're locked inside this bony cavern that's the skull, and it's dark in there. It's, it's silent in there. There's no light. There's no sound inside the skull. All you get as a brain are these electrical impulses. When light hits the eye, stuff happens and electrical impulses go into the brain. Same in the ear, same in the nose. That's all you've got. And from these electrical signals, which are only indirectly related to whatever's out there, and there really is a real world out there, the brain has to make sense of these signals to figure out what's most likely going on. And it does this, or at least here's the the idea. The theory is it does this by continually making predictions about what's going on out there in the world or in here in the body and then using the sensory signals to calibrate these predictions to keep them tied to the world and the body in ways that are, are useful for the organism and this this is kind of a challenging idea and it's something i think about a lot just in everyday life as well when i'm going to buy food or just take a walk along the seafront even though it seems to me that the world is coming into my mind from the outside in it's actually happening as my my brain is continually generating this kind of model of the world and then just updating it with the sensory information all the time so the world that i experience comes from the inside out just as much if not more than from the outside in and then because we all have different brains and different bodies the way each of our brains does this is going to be slightly different. So if you and I go for a walk on the seafront here and we look up at the grey sky, because it's a grey sky today, are we having the same experience? Well, probably quite similar, but probably not exactly the same. And we don't notice this because it seems to us we see things as they are. So we just assume that somebody else looking at the same thing would, would see the same thing too. And because the experiences are sufficiently similar that we we get away with using the same words, like, yeah, it's a grey sky today, it feels a bit chilly. And so it's natural just to think that we're all having the same experience. And I find it quite, I don't know, quite liberating in a way to just imagine all the different inner worlds of the different people walking around and sharing the same objective reality. Well, it's a very nice antidote to the polarized way in which people are seeing everything nowadays the idea there are the nuances and literally shades of gray in any aspect of life or science i think is quite reassuring at the moment given the context in which we live and there's also a, a, a useful humility about it too because if we recognize that what we experience is not just objectively the way things really are if we've really kind of bed in this understanding that even as something like color even the blueness of a blue sky or the red of a car that we might see on the street, that that involves the brain too. That's a construction of the brain. 
then we can we can learn to take ourselves with a pinch of salt in a sense and think that okay what i perceive is partly the result of my brain and therefore for somebody else it might be slightly different and that kind of humility about our perception our experience this is getting a bit idealistic and optimistic but it it could ramify a bit more into a humility about what we believe it's a very empathetic state isn't it to assume that within us are lots of nuanced versions of reality and therefore within others and even to step into that and step into someone else's shoes and be curious enough to do that is in its own event a very yeah an empathetic enlarging way to live life and i know that's that whole idea in buddhism of what diminishes you and what enlarges you and being so curious about what's going on in your own mind and consciousness does enlarge you but does it when you were saying that's about color and you talk in your book about redness and i remember as a child really thinking about that and i can't remember why but i remember looking at a post box so when you wrote about redness i remember looking at the post box and for some reason holding my dad's hand and wondering if he was seeing the same post box and not and just and that and then wondering about language as well because my parents speak French as well and wondering trying to understand and and as a tiny child thinking if I just started speaking something I didn't understand would it be French because it sounds the same as what they're speaking that I don't understand but when um and you can see why I've not gone gone on to be a scientist but when you think about um color and I guess an, a very famous example of what you just talked about was the the dress that when everyone saw the blue and the black dress or the cream and the gold dress and it became a sort of go viral freaky thing but wasn't really delved into in terms of what, what function that might serve that we saw that differently but what about color blindness then typical color blindness is red green color blindness mm -hmm. and people with with that form of color blindness they lack one of the three kinds of light sensitive cells we have in our eyes and so for them so they're there's just, a physiological thing going on before a, it goes into any kind of conscious processing. Yeah, of that's right. There's a okay. very immediate physiological thing, but it's still really perplexing. It's still perplexing in the sense that for people who aren't colorblind, red and green are just clearly very different. So the question is, for somebody with that kind of colorblindness, if they're experiencing a color that is the same color when it would be either red or green for us, well, what is that color? Now, it, it surely can't be red. It's not that all green things appear red to them. It, it, it can't be green either. It must be some other thing altogether. It's like collapsing a whole dimension going from three dimensions to two dimensions, but instead of real space in, in, in color space. There are some reports of some women, I think it's only women, who have a fourth kind of light sensitive cell in their eyes. They're so-called heterochromats, like four um or quadrochromats i can't remember the word now but anyway in sort of it's in the opposite direction so if people with color blind lose a whole dimension of color then these people have an extra dimension of color so this is another way to think about color blindness we might look at two things that are green and they're the same color but for people with this extra color receptor they'll experience two very different colors in situations that for us would be exactly the same. So color is, I think it's a really good example because we know for a long time now that color is not an objective mind independent property of the world. Things out there in the world reflect light and the brain sort of measuring how things reflect light and color is, is the flip side of that. Color is what we experience when the brain is trying to keep track of how light is reflected from surfaces and the cells in our eyes 
for, for the vast majority of us, they pick up on just three wavelengths of light. So that's very much less than all the energy that's out there that goes all the way from radio waves all the way up to x-rays. We just pick out three thin slices of that reality. And then from those thin slices, we generate millions of experienced colors. We don't just see three things. We see millions of different colors. And so purely in the realm of color, what we experience is both less than what's out there in the real world and more than what's out there. And I think that's that's quite a beautiful realization. It makes our experiences, I think, more precious when we realize that they're jointly constructed in this dance, as I mentioned, between prediction and, and correction from the world. It's not just that the world is given and we see it and that's that. I mean, that would be a bit dull. And is that what the other, and I only know a tiny bit about what the kind of opposite view is because of my brother having sort of studied in your area for a bit. And is it embodied cognition is that is the kind of counterpoint to your, or is it not as simple as there's a kind of one end of the pole of belief systems and research and another? No, I don't think it's that. It's it's never going to be that simple, unfortunately. There are all these different different philosophical ideas and views about about perception i think most people would agree that 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 color has this property of being built together between Mm -hmm. the brain and the world even even the artist says answered that he said color is where the brain and the universe Mm -hmm. meet but there are lots of different views about the extent to which the brain is involved or the world is involved or the body is involved or whether the information flows from the outside in or the inside out these are the sorts of fine details that keeps, I guess, it's what keeps academia going as a business. Is there a risk when you, you're obviously, you know, following a, a sort of body of research through your life, one thing leads you to the next, to the next, you're writing books, you've got things very much out there, you can't unwrite them, get them back in there. Is there a risk in what you do that you suddenly think, oh, shit, I've been barking up the wrong tree the whole time and have to sort of say, actually, all that stuff I said 20 years ago, I've had a bit of a rethink. Well, I, I mean, in a sense, I'd hope so. I I don't think, and that's part of the the business of, of science. And you have to be prepared to change your mind. If the evidence changes, you need to change your mind. And I don't think anybody, let alone me, is completely correct about what's going on. I think at best, any of us can hope to be partially on the right track at the moment. So there are, there are definitely going to be things in my work over the last 20 years, but probably also in the book from last year that I'll look back on in 20 years and think, I don't know, that was wrong or that was hopelessly naive. I mean, I'd hope so, because otherwise I won't learn anything new in the next 20 years. I was just trying to find out what the equivalent is of a comedian having a really bad joke that ends up out on YouTube forever. You're like, oh, God, I wish I'd never (laughs) said that. But I guess at least yours is founded in some kind of research and logic. I mean, I think there would be an example that the analogy there probably is if you if you should have known better at the time, right? If you say something and it's based on sloppy reasoning or sloppy data or you fiddle your results or something, I don't know, something like that. I mean, there could, there could be stuff that you you regret because you should have known better. But just being incompletely right now or, or even wrong now is not in itself something to regret. If you did it right for the right reasons, that's part of the process. I mean, science is, well, the ideal of science, it's this self-correcting process that is is a beautiful way of, of bringing together the efforts of many, many individuals and doesn't depend on any single individual. Of course, the, the reality of science is 
is very different from that in many ways. And it's a real challenge to try to make science live up to that to that ideal. But this is one way of being comfortable with being wrong. And the other way is simply, yeah, I just want to, I want to keep learning things. And so that requires being at least incompletely correct now. And I guess also having people coming through of uh, with different approaches, different age groups, the conviction of youth and people coming in with very clear opinions, I guess, working with you and and I guess there are a lot of challenges all around you if you're actively involved in academia um, and you've got new brilliance coming at you from every direction. It must be quite thought-provoking even just to be in that dialogue. <laughs> thought-provoking yeah, I mean, stroke, thought annoying. Well, no, thought-provoking <laughs> is the understatement. This, this, is, this is one of the things you know, I've really... I've really enjoyed over the last, I guess, 10 years or so where I've had a, a kind of research group that's brought through PhD students and, and postdocs. And I have learned so much from them. You know, I've learned much more from them than I'm sure they've ever learned from me. And that just continues to be the case. And it's people bring different perspectives. They, they already know more about their specific thing, uh, but they have different intuitions, different insights and and that's been i mean that's what that's what keeps things fresh Namaste, motherfuckers. do you ever have that i know as someone who worked behind the camera and then became a comic i i sort of have an instinct sometimes about someone i'll see on the circuit and i see them do you know it's their 10th gig or they've been i saw someone last night he's only been going a year which in comedic terms is like being a baby but he was incredible and you see someone you're like i know that's going to be that person is going to become a really really big comedian do you have that sometimes when a sort of new voice comes in you think i i can see something big is going to happen for you in this field i think so i think it's i think it's just the time scales are a bit longer so i guess in in comedy you know you might see someone one year and you think, oh, they're they're really damn good. And maybe the next year they break through and they get the Perrier Award or it's whatever. Usually about seven years, but yeah, is it yeah, seven it's years? A bit quicker. Oh, I'm it guessing isn't. yours could be more more a couple of decades. It's it take it takes a while. Maybe it isn't so dissimilar then, because you def I definitely have that impression. Sometimes I'll you know I'll go to a conference and I'll I'll see somebody or I'll, I'll read about some work, read a paper, and think that yeah, that's there's really something going on there. But I get another difference is that. Science, I think, is more, by its nature, it's a bit more collaborative. Not that comedy isn't collaborative, but... It's not collaborative. It's it vicious. probably isn't collaborative, is it? <laughs> but most you know, most studies, in, especially in my area of science, in neuroscience and psychology, uh, are not done by one single person. They're done by groups of people. So it then becomes a little harder to, to know what the contribution of a single person has been. Uh, there must be egos there. I mean, that I know even a little bit just from sort of having seen it with, with my brother and other friends who are more in, not in your field specifically, but but in academia, people who at least put, put themselves up as a sort of shining light or people you must have come across as a, as a kind of younger man entering into this who might have been slightly intimidating egos. I mean, you've worked with some big, very big names in your field. Yeah, I mean, it's it, it definitely it's there. There are lots of ego issues in in science and philosophy it's it attracts you know pe people it attracts people who think they're very smart and some of them are very smart and being very smart is a good thing in academia of course you it's necessary it's a good thing in other areas too but yeah there's a there's a certain there's a certain element of ego that goes along with 
the idea that you're advancing human knowledge and if you've got your own particular theory that you know that that might you might feel very personally attached to that that it has to be right that you've got to buy into it um i think that's unavoidable and i'm sure you know i probably have something of that too a little bit because you have to have a certain confidence in your in your way of thinking and conviction to, i guess it's it's an enormous must be enormously laborious to start pursuing something unless you had the conviction it was worth pursuing yeah yeah that's right that's right if if you don't really have that conviction you're never going to get going but it is a it's a difficult field to to navigate but i have to say that in my experience with a couple of exceptions i mean most people have been very kind very generous uh, and and very supportive there's a certain amount of competition there's always certain difficulties here and there but it's i think partly because there is this fundamental fabric of collaboration too you know you're not really going to get on and so, so you're going to make it much harder to get on if you don't treat people well if you don't treat them nicely if you don't give them credit if you don't work together with them if you don't respect their their views and their time and does it for people who you had a very similar path to my brother in terms of being ma- doing sort of mathematician um doing physics and then moving from there into psychology and then ai and cognitive science what what is the I know this seems terribly obvious to you, but the link between science and philosophy, which doesn't instantly perhaps seem logical to people not in your field. I think the link is certainly in in what I'm doing, trying to understand consciousness is very close. Consciousness was originally a philosophical problem Mm -hmm. because it was there before science ever existed. People were wondering about the mind. Why is it like something to be somebody why am i me and not you what happens after i die all of these were questions that preceded the beginnings of science back in the 16th 17th century um and the simple way i think about it now is that philosophy without science is a bit lame you can you can generate questions, you can make arguments, but you can't really get a grip on what's actually going on in the world. And at the same time, science without philosophy is blind. You, know, you can generate data, you can do experiments, but you won't really advance understanding. You might get lucky here and there, but philosophy is is all about you know, how we build knowledge through thinking. Um, and how we construct arguments, how we analyze arguments, how we interpret what we find, what it means. And so you really do need these things together in order to to advance understanding. I've never formally trained in philosophy, but it's become quite a central part of, of what I do, uh, both in, in writing and also in, in the people I talk to. You know, I think philosophy is absolutely essential. And if people were to try to understand some of the things that have been thought-provoking for you in the field of philosophy are there certain books there are, there are certain books that sort of lay people like me know that might they might think of but are there, are there certain sort of books or works or philosophers who've been really instrumental along the way for you in your understanding of consciousness there have there's been one, one of the things i've really noticed I've, I've been very pleased to see about is that there's been this coming together of science and philosophy not just in general but in specific people too so there's now new generations of philosophers who who also know about neuroscience and and about ai and can can put the things together in a very informed way and 
in the other direction, and I try to be one of these people too, who's mainly a scientist, but, but knows a bit about philosophy. I was very inspired by, I think, two philosophers come to mind. One is Daniel Dennett. Uh, he's a philosopher um, of minds uh, in Boston, Massachusetts. And he wrote a book back in 1991, the year I started my undergraduate degree, and it was called Consciousness Explained. It's a very bold, provocative bold title. title. Yeah. And people have subsequently criticized it as consciousness explained away and other such things, because, of course, it wasn't the end of the story. It was rather the beginning of a story. But it was the first book in philosophy that I'd read that really took psychology, cognitive science and, and neuroscience seriously and tried to come up with a new way of thinking about consciousness. And I read it and um, it made me think, yeah, there's a there there. This is something there's something going on and it's going exciting places. And then more recently, the German philosopher Thomas Metzinger, who's, who's now a good friend of mine, um, he had a background in, in German analytical philosophy, which is very long and very serious and very detailed. So here's kind of a different style. But what he wrote about the self in a series of books, a book that I long book that I read in 2000s, the early 2000s, and a, and a more recent book aimed at a public audience like mine called The Ego Tunnel, which I think was about 10 years ago now. Those books for me were really beautiful examples, again, of, of drawing out the, the possibilities of science and philosophy working together. And, and Thomas Metzinger talked a lot about the self as a kind of perception. So very similar ideas to the ideas that I ended up developing. So I, I owe him a lot for those specific way of thinking. And it's also trying to make those ideas when you talk about what might be accessible to somebody who's not in the field. And actually, that is one of the brilliant things about your book. And when I saw, um, you know, David Byrne and uh, Russell Brandon, you had some some very varied people um, sort of saluting you for what you've done. And I thought, well, that in its own right is interesting that a, a diverse range of people are enjoying reading it and getting a lot out of it. Because it's quite hard. I know my brother used to try and explain what he was doing. And I used to say, I just don't, like, give me the headline. I don't, under it was so... I, I lost the initial premise, so I couldn't understand what came next. But I did understand, and you talk about it in your book, um, the pivotal essay, What Is It Like to Be a Bat?, which is a philosophical essay, right? The idea that, right. that an organism has to can only have a conscious mental state if there's something it is like to be that organism, right? That's the sort of Very premise. good. Yeah, yes. exactly. That's Yeah, that's exactly the quote. Yeah. yeah. So that so that idea because that that brings in I guess where does the idea of my my son is um is an autistic zookeeper he works primarily with primates so I'm interested in neurodiversity and I do want to ask you about that briefly but I also am interested in animals and where in the pecking order of of organisms does consciousness cease to be a thing? Yeah, this is one of the big unknowns, and I think it's one of the things that is very very difficult for us to to make reasonable statements about the views about consciousness in animals other than humans has just changed so much over over centuries and you know in various directions in the middle ages uh, people would take farm animals to court on the basis of them having potentially committed crimes and they would sort of you know, give them a full defense as well as a prosecution so that they were assuming these animals had quite a lot going on well that's a uh, brilliant bit of trivia that i'm as worth having you on just for that thank you it's 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 <laughs> insane there's there's this amazing book that i read a few years ago i mentioned it a little bit in my own book but there's there's a book called the the history of 
criminal animal prosecution or something like that. And it's just nuts. The kinds of things that would get taken to court. I think the my my favorite one, they're all they were didn't all, but they mainly happened in France for some reason. Um was a, a case was brought against a uh, an infestation of rodents of rats that had taken up residence in a house and was chewing it into pieces and so on. And so these rats were being accused uh, of, you know, I guess, unlawful infestation, something like that. With malicious and intent. With, with malicious intent. And they were summoned to court to defend themselves. And How um, were they summoned? In a letter? In, by, by a letter. So this is why it's totally insane, because on the one hand, they're, they're sort of treating animals with a respect that, that we don't give them now. On the other hand, they're asking rats to read legal letters in French, which of course they can't do. <laughs> and, not many of so, us can. Not many of us can. <laughs> and and the rats were assigned a lawyer. The lawyer in this case was a guy called Bartholomew Chassonet. And he wasn't a rat. He was a human being. And he went to court on behalf of the rats, because the rats didn't show up, obviously. And he explained that the rats could should be excused from... You know, they shouldn't be held in contempt of court because the route from the house they were infesting to the courtroom is known to have lots of cats in the vicinity. So the rats would have been putting themselves at mortal danger had they in fact obeyed the summons. And that argument apparently worked. So the rats were at least exonerated from. So they got that off on a technicality, of a practical a... technicality. <laughs> yeah. I'd love to know if they were, what would have happened to them. They'd have got sent to prison, which wouldn't have been good, or they would have been fined, but they wouldn't have had bank accounts. It, th these discussions happened as well. I think for the rats, the idea. So, so the, the the backstory is that you know why why do all this? And there was this there was this tension between you know, these animals, obviously. Being a, being a pain, being a nuisance, but then God put them there and God gave them their nature. So if you punish them for doing things that are their nature, in a sense, you're criticizing God and that's not a good thing to do. So this very sort of complicated framing context in which these things were, were playing out and that affected the, the punishments too. So there was, so I think I, I, I have no idea what would have happened to the rats, but there was another one about locusts that you know, locusts would sweep in and eat all the crops. And so there was this idea that, you, that they would reserve some land specifically for the locusts to go and destroy other, away from the fields, because that would allow the locusts to express their God-given nature in a way that wasn't causing famine for the, for the village. But of course, the locusts have no idea that they've been reserved the fields on the other side of the other fields. So, so these these things, I I, I mean, you'd, I guess you'd have to be there to know. I mean, you get these tantalizing glimpses through the court records because they kept all these court records. This is why we know about it. But exactly what happens, um, we don't know. And I think in one case, we really don't know because the court records ended up being eaten by some of the same <laughs> rodents that were being accused of in that particular trial but i think we, we've gone off on a bit of a tangent as um, it's funny it's, you it's, say that i did um some i always do sort of facts and trivia at the start of the podcast and i did one about schools for this week's podcast and i was looking up odd facts about schools and there was a french school a rural school that was going to be closed down because there weren't enough 
children being born in the village. So now it's the school that's only got 15 sheep as pupils at the moment, and that's how they're managing to maintain funding. So there you go. That that was last year. So okay. still some good animal stories. I think that was more uh, ducking the funding system rather than them thinking the sheep were going to learn something. But who knows? But what is your view then? Because I, I know um uh, you know a fair bit about my son being a sort of uh, you know leading primatologist. Mm-hmm. I've sort of picked up a bit by osmosis. So I guess we've all kind of got the concept that primates and some large mammals, you know, we can understand that it would be you know something you know what's it like to be a dog what's it like to be a gorilla that that would be a thing we can understand that my octopus teacher I think sort of was quite incredible anyone who hasn't seen it that that was a massive eye-opener in terms of you know that that the relationship between the diver and the octopus and I know a lot's been kind of written about the sophistication of the octopus but how sort of far down the the hierarchy of living things does it go then consciousness i mean evolution is 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 given us a beautiful tree rather than a strict hierarchy i think it's one of the challenges we have is we think we're we're at the top and then it's you sort of go down this ladder to well some of (laughs) we still seem to behave as if we do though and you go down the ladder to primates monkeys and so on then further down to i don't know dogs and cats and then rats and you know and further and further down until you get to bacteria and earthworms and very very simple things yes it's true that some animals are more complex than others but we've all been evolving on this planet for for many many millions of years um and the way to try and infer how far out from the human this circle of consciousness extends is, is really tricky primates for sure right if you look at the brain of a of a primate of a monkey or a great ape it's very similar to a human brain all the key structures that we know are important in consciousness in us are there in primates and they're pretty much there in all other mammals whether it's a dog or a mouse so i'm pretty confident that all mammals are conscious the difference is they don't have the ability to tell us that you, know, you they like language they like the and they may lack other things they may lack an explicit self you know we can we can talk about our conscious experiences but we can also refer them to a self that is me or you there may be nothing it's like to be a mouse self but there might still be something it is like to be a mouse there might be a perceptual world happening for that mouse that involves the body too but beyond that it's really really hard to say things get difficult because we can't ask these other creatures we have to do it indirectly and sort of by comparison to what we already know this is why animals like octopus are really interesting because they have very different brains to mammals. The common ancestor between octopuses and mammals is something like, I don't know, 600 million years ago, something like that, huge long time ago, and was a very, very simple rudimentary creature. Yet spending time with octopuses, I, I spent a week with them uh, about 12 years ago in a marine biology lab in, in Italy. It really does give you this, the the sense that you're in the presence of another awareness. How reliable is that intuition? I don't I don't know because you know, it can work both ways. You can think oh, I'm in the presence of something aware, but we might also these days feel that when we deal with certain you know, forms of AI, some language models that we see in machine learning these days, and that would be misleading because there's nothing going on there that's just a computer program churning away and also when we don't have that intuition does it mean there's nothing there most people looking at you know a herring might not think oh yeah herring i see you 
but herrings have brains they have bodies to regulate uh they respond to pain in somewhat similar ways to mammals so who's to say that fish don't feel pain and are not conscious and then you go down to insects and so on my view is that there probably is a line somewhere and it's probably quite far from the human and the reason i think that the simple reason i think that is that consciousness is not for being smart or having language or being intelligent or generating art and culture or all the things that we think humanity is distinctive for consciousness in in my view is much more basic than that it's about keeping the body alive it's about representing the world to the organism in a way that makes it clear what the organism should do to help it stay alive and that fundamental imperative to stay alive i mean that's common to very very many living organisms for some organisms they might not have to do very complicated things to stay alive so they might not need conscious experiences but many animals probably do so it's, for me it's all mammals for sure and then birds i think also fish maybe insects who knows the the what the case that i just have really no idea about is the bumblebee in what regards in the regard that they that they they do clever things they and they per, they perceive their world in complex ways um but their brains are very very different from ours and they don't they don't give the impression that an octopus gives i mean this is this these reasons are all very bad reasons which is why i struggle so so it's an intuit you have an intuition based on some fact and then some because what you talked about being in that and that sounds like an amazing thing to do for a week they should be selling that off as a sort of you know <laughs> retreat go and hang out in italy with some oct oct is it octopuses or octopi octopuses it's octopuses octopuses but the um it sounds like the shape of water you being sally hawkins falling in love with an octopus <laughs> through a glass wall but do you think um, well i was going to ask you actually in terms of films are there any films so things like eternal um, sunshine of the spotless mind or mm. whatever that film was where someone fell in love with their ios those mm, ideas that where was you her, get, wasn't it? yeah yeah mm. but do you that's right but are there and, and i've picked two wildly different films with completely different premises but just happen to have something to do with ai in one case and the brain mm. in another but do you are there any films that people, I know Adam Buxton, when he interviewed you, talked about The Matrix a few times, but are there any films where you think actually that gets a little bit close to what you think, that it's got any kind of relevance to the whole what is consciousness debate? I think film has been a great medium for for provoking questions, for making people think. It's it's a very creative medium for doing that. The, the Matrix is, yeah, that's a clear, that's, I mean, that's a, the original Matrix, which is a great film, and it asks this question, what is real about the world that we experience? Is it really out there or, it, or could it be somehow fed in to our, to our brains from, from somewhere else? Now, I don't think that we live in the matrix as in the film, but I do think that the world that we experience is not the world as it really is. So there's, there's an interesting resonance there. Then two other films, they're all classic sci-fi films, I'm afraid. The other one is, is uh, Blade Runner. Mm-hmm. And Blade Runner gets at the idea that what matters, what really matters, what distinguishes the you know the the made replicants from the born humans, 
is emotion. It's not intelligence. It's not language. It's having to write emotional responses in situations. And then the third film, which I think is extraordinarily clever, but compelling. It's almost like a play, I think, rather than the film, is Alex Garland's Ex Machina. And here we get to AI again, but it's using it not as a sort of fancy like, hey, look, we can make amazing visual effects and so on. It's using it to ask this really important question, which is what does it take for somebody to really believe that a system has conscious experience? So it's it's a little bit like Blade Runner in that in that way, but it's more it deals with the issue more directly. I mean, the film is 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 literally set up that way. There's a character in it who is tasked with deciding whether this female robot is conscious or not. Not whether it's a robot or not, but knowing that it's a robot, is she conscious? Does she have experiences? And the beautiful thing about that is that that's now actually gone back into philosophy of mind. There's now this thing called the Garland test coined by a, a friend of mine, Murray Shanahan, who says, like, actually, this is a really important question. And this is different from this famous Turing test, which was Alan Turing's mm -hmm. test of whether a machine is intelligent or not. Now, this is a very different question. And there's this piece of dialogue in the film which just makes that clear and introduces this, this other way of thinking. And now, you know, some people talk about the Garland test in philosophy. And I think that's great. And it's also a really, really good film. It's just very taut, very beautifully done. And I recommend it if you haven't seen it, if people listening haven't seen it, yeah, watch that. And what is your view, before I ask you the three questions I ask everybody, I'm guessing if we're not, because we equate, we erroneously sometimes attempted to equate intelligence with consciousness or language with consciousness and I guess everything you're working in sort of is is disabusing us of that and saying no it's a much 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 broader much more complex area so I'm guessing your view would be that, ro that, that, that robots probably won't ever be able to be conscious but I guess that's something that we couldn't rule out yeah that's it I yeah that, I think you've hit the nail on the head there it's it's very difficult to rule it out it kind of depends on what we mean by robot. I think robots as they are now or as they will be in the near future, it's definitely not. But future robots could be very much more complex. They could be much more closely based on what's going on in our own brains and bodies, potentially. I think there's a really big unknown, which is, does the kind of stuff you're made of matter? I mean, we're made of meat. We're made of flesh and blood. Does that matter? Or could you be made of silicon, nuts and bolts and tin cans, you know, strung together in the right way? Many people think it doesn't matter. They think consciousness is a is something you could run on a computer if your computer was big enough and you got the program right. I just don't think there's any good reason to assume that. Like some things are like that, like chess is like that. You can you know, computer that plays chess plays chess, but when it rains, you need actual water. It's not something that you can just program on. You can simulate rain. People do that when they do weather forecasts, but it doesn't actually make it rain. In my view, consciousness is likely to depend on the stuff we're made of because consciousness is fundamentally grounded, in my view, in our nature as living, breathing creatures. It's about keeping us alive. And in the brain and the body, 
Now, there's no distinction between like the mindware and the wetware as you have in a computer between the hardware and the software. Now, even single cells are in the business of keeping themselves going over time. So I don't think that a conscious computer is around the corner. But what is what is likely are especially in the virtual world, like with these deep fakes and language models and things like that, I think we'll be faced with situations where virtual creatures might be indistinguishable from real conscious people. And that's going to be really challenging for society because we can't help responding to things that we think are conscious in a particular way. We give them some kind of moral status and we care about them. They they pull on our the strings of our minds in ways that we can't prevent. And of our and, hearts, if we take them to be conscious. And of our hearts. And if we live in a world where it's it's possible to create technologies that that hack our hearts and our minds to convince us that they're conscious when they're not, or at least we have no good reason, that's going to be pretty disruptive. And that, for me, is, is a, a much more clear and present thing to worry about than this more like, sci-fi prospect of, of Promethean prospects of yeah, here's my new, here's my new program, and it feels it's alive, it's aware. I think that's not really going to happen, not yet. So you don't think it's a fake Matt Hancock that's going into the I'm a Celebrity uh, jungle? Then it's the real one. <laughs> <laughs> I think it's the real one. Though who knows with him? He's a bit robotic. I know that's what I thought of him. He sprung to mind as an evil, evil robot. Um, and we will put a link um, in the show notes to your perception census. So people, an online study that you've got currently going on, um, looking at sort of perceptual diversity. And we'll also put a link to your Guardian article, which I think really helpfully sums it up. And it does actually really also beautifully encompass the combination of the scientific and the philosophical kind of brain and why people might be interested about this, even if they're not interested in the business of science. Yeah, thank you for that. It just this, It gets back to the earlier part of what we were talking about. Uh, that everybody has a different brain so everyone will have a, at least a slightly different experience of the world but but we just don't know much about that yet uh, it's very hard it's very hard to measure i mean we can tell how we all differ on the outside it's very easy to see that we all differ in skin color and height and so on and i think as a society we now realize that's a that's a rich diversity it's something to cherish but diversity on the inside is really hard to see because it's private, it's subjective, and we use the same words to describe experiences, and it seems as though we see things as they are. And so differences on the inside only get recognized when they become quite significant. And so you know, we, we have you know, people with autism, as you were saying, done. people with ADHD, people with nameable conditions where they their perceptions of the world diverge so much that it surfaces in their language and behavior. But I think and that's what people often use the term neurodiversity to, to refer to. But I think ironically, that can reinforce the, the wrong impression that for the non-neurodivergent people, there is a right, correct, neurotypical way of perceiving things. And that's not true. And that's not what neurodiversity advocates mean either. That's just the way it's come to be understood by many people. So we have this new project called the Perception Census, which anyone over 18 can take part in and it's sort of citizen science thing we try to make it fun and engaging and it's really trying to measure this hidden landscape of perceptual diversity among all of us and get a handle on what it looks like and i'm i'm very excited to see 
you know, what it will look like. We've had about 10,000 people take part already. We're hoping to get many, many more different parts of the world. And people taking part will also learn about their own way of perceiving way of perceiving and how it relates. Yeah, any any of your listeners that would like to help us with this research and and learn more about their own perception, then yeah, follow the link. Thank you. Namaste, motherfuckers. What would you pick as your namaste motherfucking life-changing moment? It's a good question. I thought about this a bit. It was hard to come up with a single moment because I honestly don't think it's been like that in my life. But I do keep coming back to one moment and it's it's a moment that was important to me in, in my career rather than so much in the personal life. It was at the end of my degree and I, my first degree was in psychology and the head of the department, who's this sort of very senior figure in, in, in the field, and he came to me and sort of in a joking way, this was like there's some party after we'd all finished. He said, ah, yeah, you, you'll be after my job next. And it was a joke. And I, you know, and now I know I don't want to be head of department anyway. It's like the worst job in academia. But I still remember it because I'd never thought, you know, that I would be an academic. It's not what I set out to do. You know, I did a degree and I was interested, but none of my family are academics. I just thought it was something that other people did. And that, whether it was a carefully planned seed in my mind or a throwaway remark, it made a difference. This was like the mid nineties. It made a difference just to that. Oh, maybe this kind of thing is something I can do. Maybe I should just keep going. It gave me that. It gave me the confidence. It didn't give me the conviction, but it gave me the confidence to keep going. Do you think he knows that? Have you ever told him? I I regret that I didn't. I he's he's dead now. He passed away a few years ago. Um, I did see him once or twice. After that, I, I went back to give a lecture at the university and, and he was there many years later and I talked to him a bit, but I do regret I never I never mentioned that. And I've tried to to correct that regret for others. In fact, I saw another um, old uh, mentor of mine when I was in Amsterdam last week, a German neuroscientist who's in his 80s now. He had also said something very kind to me very, very briefly in the mid 2000s. And I made sure that this time I told him and I thanked him for that remark. And I'm really glad I did. Yeah, while we get the chance, I never got a chance to thank Joan Rivers for setting me on the path of stand-up because she died before I'd started. Um, and talking of Joan Rivers, what is your favourite joke, Anil? <laughs> I know, you have, you have comedians on your podcast. This is a huge... Comedians hate telling jokes. If you, if you listen to lots of these podcasts, you'll see that is the question which gets comedians okay. in a flutter. But, you know, you should be asking them what their favourite neuroscience paper From is. From now on, I will. <laughs> <laughs> but, so my, my favorite joke i'm gonna it's it's like it's, it's not really a joke it's a pun crime in multi-story car parks is wrong on so many levels excellent and beautifully delivered you see you've shown that you can be a comedian and i cannot be a neuroscientist and if there was um one bit of life advice you could give to anybody listening what would it be it's to stay curious Keep learning and stay curious. That was Anil Seth. 
And a quick reminder about the perception sensors that we just talked about. There's a link to that in the show notes. Um, And when you do it, you learn about your powers of perception, but you also help scientists and philosophers uncover why and how we all experience the world in our own unique ways. And talking of unique experiences, of course you are unique in how you experience Namaste motherfuckers. What I'm saying is, why not take a moment to rate and review the podcast? We get so many people saying they absolutely love it, but please do remember to rate and review it and tell everyone why don't you. So that is it for this week. Thank you so, so much for listening. So I just got a bit distracted because there's a ladybird walking around my laptop. There's a bit of alliteration for you. Uh, Right, where were we? Yes, thank you so much for listening. And uh, we will be back in your feed next Thursday, as always, when I will be talking to comedian Hal Cruttenden. I am a little bit, don't really know who I am, which sounds ridiculous at 53. Namaste, Motherfuckers was written and presented by me, Callie Beaton, and produced by Mike Hansen and Karusha Dami for Pod People Productions, with music by Jake Yap. I'm Callie Beaton. Until next time, motherfuckers. Namaste, motherfuckers. Pod people. Hi, my name is Kay Adams, and to be honest, I'm not so good with the aging process, so I enlisted my old chum, the filter-free Cara McKenzie, to advise. Could you imagine being a porn star? The room would need to be really hot for me to strip <laughs> off. <laughs> to be honest, she's not much help, but she is rather amusing. And along with some great guests, Joe Brand, Andy Oliver, Anton Dubeck, Ruth Langsford, and Craig Revel Horwood, darling, we are learning how to be 60. Listen wherever you get your podcasts.